Welcome back to There Will Be Movies. This is our mini-series covering movies from the 90s. This is episode 58, covering Jurassic Park, Steven Spielberg's absolutely mammoth movie from 1993. I am your host, Benjamin Phillips, and I'm joined, as always, by Matthew Waters. How are you? A mere three days after we recorded our last episode. There are no mammoths in this movie. There's a T-Rex, but uh, yeah, no, I'm, I'm good, I'm good. We're shrugging off Groundhog Day and we're moving on to dinos. Benjamin, you had some homework. You've had three days, as you've just alluded to, to think about it. What's your favourite dinosaur? I do like an Ankylosaurus. Uh-huh. They're cool. Yeah. My favourite dinosaur in this movie okay. is the Dilophosaurus. <laughs> Mischievous little fuck as he is. Yeah. Mischievous little fuck. And then I've also got like a page open of just like every single dinosaur, and I'm like, there's a lot <laughs> of dinosaurs that like don't get much play in popular culture. Okay, well, I'm more of a basic bitch. I'm, I'm, I'm the sort of the T-Rex, Velociraptor, Oscillation route. I mean, I will say, look, in the seminal CGI tour de force of the 90s, the definitive one, Beast Wars featured Dinobot, a Velociraptor, making his last stand to save the entire human race. So, obviously, Velociraptor pips it for me. He saved all of mankind, Ben. He did save all of mankind, long <laughs> before mankind even fully existed. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, we alluded to it a little bit last week. Mr. Spielberg did direct a slightly more culturally important movie than this one. But Dinosaurs is more in our wheelhouse, and it keeps the streak of... Interesting movies that are very much not the kind of stuff we were covering in the other two volumes alive. This is as big as it gets when it comes to a popcorn movie, if you want to call them that. This is the first time that we are covering the highest grossing movie of all time in one of these miniseries. Yes, I suppose we did talk about Endgame, but did, it hadn't but... it had just come out. So. Yes, but it also <laughs> wasn't in like in the, the, the cultural like best of the decade list, was it? Like Maybe we would have done an episode of no. Endgame if we hadn't done the Marvel podcast, but I also doubt it. I figure we would have had, like, do we do Avengers or do we do Black Panther if we hadn't done mm. Marvelous Journey? I mean, you know, Infinity was better, so... <laughs> <laughs> Just dropping that in there. Also, <laughs> better Marvelous Journey. There's also the, the, only, the only time we would have had a chance, really, to discuss one of these before this point is Avatar. Which I will never discuss. <laughs> you can't make me do it. Is the thing. Spoilers, we're not discussing Titanic in this miniseries. I'm surprised at you, to be honest, <laughs> for not swinging harder for it. I think Titanic is a good, it's a good movie, uh, yeah. but also, also it's, it's long. It's very long. We have one stupidly long movie to cover, and it is not Titanic. It's not. It's not. Yeah, somehow, <laughs> Spielberg and James Cameron each had two movies that were at one point the, the biggest movie of all time. Three, uh, three sorry, yes. Three for Spielberg, two for, for Cameron. And that's why Spielberg's on the list and Cameron just simply cannot cut it. And I don't think we'll be appearing this volume. I mean, I mean, it's no question. If we did a Cameron movie from this decade, it's T2. Yeah, I mean, again, Terminator 1's better, but... Uh, <laughs> is that actually the 80s anyway? Is it like 89? It is, it is eight, yeah. 84. He, te- he does, eight, he does 84? Eight. Jesus Christ. Okay. Yeah, he does like Terminator in like 84, then he does Aliens in 87, and then has no respect from anyone on that crew, apparently, because it's like all of Ridley Scott's like crew from Aliens and they're like, what the fuck is this American upstart coming in here bossing us around doing? And so like, when he leaves the set on that movie, he's just like, we've made this movie together, I hope to never speak to any of you ever again. <laughs> That's going to be our new sign-off for the podcast. 
Yeah, we're not talking about that. We're talking about Spielberg, who is all the things I've heard about him, just a, a nice guy. It's annoying, almost, that he just... I'm sure there's some skeleton in the closet that his powerful connections have gotten rid of, but yeah, just seems a genuinely very nice human being. Helps Did out he... a lot of other directors and writers and, and huge into animation. Was seminal in reviving, in some ways, Warner Bros. animation. Um, mm. The Animaniacs, he was, he was behind. And that came back, and I think went straight away again but no there's a season two coming okay cool well, there you um, go. He, I mean, he did direct a segment on twilight zone the movie okay but he did not direct the parts which ended up killing someone yeah i guess that's his, that's his near miss but yeah you know just a nice man who might be the best director of all time he's certainly the most culturally relevant director of all time baby's first i know the name of a director uh is steven spielberg i remember when we were in like year seven or eight at school mm-hmm. and we were told to like make a film poster for a book that we were doing in English class film and like for a book okay yes <laughs> every single person in the class put Spielberg down as their director because it's yeah. like you're asking a group of like 12 year olds who like probably don't pay attention to the credits on films to like come up with a director <laughs> came up with some wanky choice I can't remember who I picked but it wasn't Spielberg I would be fascinated to know who it is for kids like does he have this name value for children today that he did then like because I mean you know it's not like kids are like all in for Schindler's List it's off the back of mostly off Jurassic Park I would think but then like you know the name value of Jaws etc like even if as a kid you haven't seen Jaws I mean I, f- I figure you still have some sort of peripheral awareness of it like kids do the you know and, and like all that and I don't know I wonder if he still holds that value for a younger generation but then a younger generation play Fortnite so I am afraid of them quite frankly <laughs> I mean so, so what is your history with Spielberg is this the first Spielberg that you saw or um, were you like shown E.T. or the Indiana Jones movies like what where was it that like I would have to think it was Jurassic Park certainly I would have had as I said like some sort of peripheral awareness of things like E.T. and Jaws didn't actually watch Jaws until I was a few years older yeah it was probably Jurassic Park and then probably an Indiana Jones that I was probably a little bit too young to watch as most people who watch Indiana Jones for the first time are <laughs> yeah I mean I think we had like Indiana Jones and Jurassic Park and E.T. on like VHS when yeah. I was growing up so, so the, the, the core ones that I was watching Goonies was not a thing for me we had Hook I've never been huge on Hook and that normally gets me um, you know those memes what rea- what opinion gets you <laughs> gets the timeline to do this to you or whatever yeah never been huge on Hook don't know Hook, why Hook's bad okay the well, then there we go I thought it was a controversial opinion it's uh, one of those nostalgia ones where if you go back yeah. to nowadays you go like oh this is boring <laughs> Yeah, I was always like, I mean, this is the least exciting version of Peter Pan I've ever seen. It's, it's two hours and 20 minutes long. <laughs> oh my god. But in 1991 as well. I mean, look, Jurassic Park was ines- inescapably huge. I mean, I would have been four years old in 1993. So it's not like I was going to see it in the cinema or anything like that. But obviously it gets sequels, one of which is, is directed by Spielberg. I, who did the third one? Uh, Joe Johnston, director of First Avenger and The Rocketeer. And the Rocketeer, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, it gets sequels. The merchandise... It's omnipresent in the in the mid nineties, I would say. So even if I didn't see the first one in a theatre by any stretch, like I vaguely remember seeing I can't have seen tra I can't remember seeing trailers. I have no memories from before I was like eight. <laughs> but 
Anyway, I remember it being a large part of the experience of being a child in this era. And then obviously at some point, you know, I, again, like not a conscious effort, obviously, because you you get what you can get when you're a child. But yeah, I would have watched Indiana Jones, E.T., etc. Jaws at some point would have followed. And then, I mean, I'm not a huge war movie guy, but Saving Private Ryan was quite a big deal. Another one that probably I would imagine people would be like, oh, they haven't picked Schindler's List. They've surely picked Saving Private Ryan. I mean, I mean sure. Shall we do that now? So obviously this is Spielberg's kind of most fertile decade, but it's the one that kind of like changes the path of his career in a lot of ways where like he's coming off this run in the 80s of kind of like alternating between stuff like Indiana Jones and then doing like Empire of the Sun and Always Mm. and stuff like that. So like he's bouncing between his like populist filmmaking and more awards drama stuff. One for you, one for me. Yeah, exactly. And then in the 90s, it's Hook in 91, Jurassic Park in 93, Schindler's List in 93, he takes four years off, comes back in 97 with Lost World and Amistad, which is a bad movie. He does it way more successfully when he comes back to it in Lincoln. Um, <laughs> okay, yeah. And then Saving Private Ryan in 98. So he wins the Best Director twice in the decade of Shins List and Saving Private Ryan. He wins Best Picture once. He arguably should have beaten Shakespeare in Love in 98, but yeah. Weinstein is Weinstein. Really looking at that list, like, Hook isn't good. Lost no. World isn't as good as this. No. Amistad is bad Lincoln, so it really leaves us with Saving Private Ryan, Schindler's List, and Jurassic Park. And as you say, you're not a big war movie fan. I do <laughs> think that we lack the nuance to do Schindler's List justice. I mean, if you want to hear some opinions on Schindler's List, they are out there. <laughs> no one's ever talked about Jurassic Park, though, so this is that is the thing that yeah (laughs) this is no one has ever said anything about Jurassic Park ever yeah so we the runway is clear baby we are going to take this plane to new heights uh, and and we're going to suddenly be the biggest podcast of all time it is funny to look at that like list of movies and all of them are like these big budget even the ones that are like more awards baited like Saving Private Ryan do have that whiff of like it's a blockbuster in a lot of ways and then the shift in the 2000s when it becomes like AI and Minority Report, they become a lot more... If they're blockbusters, they're cerebral blockbusters. Yes, I will, I will absolutely give him that. I need to watch AI again at some point. I'll have watched it once upon a time and been like, eh, that's, that's kind of weird. But probably at a point when weird put me off rather than, like, was something I liked. We obviously covered, catch me if you can, in volume two, one, one wow. of the podcast. <laughs> and that was a, a very, very fun time. Uh, I detest his version of War of the Worlds. I'm sure that's another one that would get me knifed. War of the Worlds is a weird one in that, like, I do think that the most of the movie is really good. It's just it completely undercuts itself in many significant ways that kind of hold it back from being one of his greats. Warhorse, I mean, Adventures of Tintin, I'm sure. I think you may have attempted a punt to get that on the list at some point. Tintin rules. Tintin is probably my favourite 2010s Spielberg movie. Well, I mean, I'm not saying it was his worst decade, but... It's probably his worst decade. (laughs) Tintin, Lincoln, Bridge of Spies are all great movies. Post is interesting. Ready Player One is better than the book, at least. But that doesn't really mean a whole lot. It it doesn't. The book is bad. But, like, (laughs) at least the film has some interesting conversations. Have you seen the movie? Uh, no. So, there is a section of that movie where Spielberg, like, fully recreates the Outlook Hotel from The Shining. Mm -hmm. And, like, it's just him doing his own version of The Shining for a little bit. And, like, it just makes it interesting in context of AI and stuff like that. I do like that amidst... Obviously, like, the hook of the movie is, like, here's every pop culture character and, like, here's the bike from Akira and the Iron Giant and everything. And he was like, we're going to do the hotel from The Shining. 
<laughs> like, like that's the middle set piece of the movie. They go, they go to The Shining. You can all have this noisy nonsense. I'm going to do a movie I quite like. And then uh, he's got West Side Story coming, for Which, some reason. Yeah, that, that's, it's going to be weird. I'm sure it's going to be good, but like it's going to be I, weird. Hamilton's big, is all I will say yeah. <laughs> in response to that. Yeah, um, I mean, but like, speaking we, of big, d- oh, yeah. dinosaurs are big. I don't dinosaurs are very big. How did this movie do at the opening box office? Already we've spoiled this was the highest grossing movie of all time, so I'm sure this is going to be a very big number when it opens June 11th. It opened technically... On a Thursday, on June 10th, straight in at number one and made $3 million on a Thursday, which is pretty fucking insane. But for the actual, we'll, we'll do the whole weekend where, it, you know, it makes a paltry $47 million in its opening weekend to bring it up to 50 with that opening day. It opens over Cliffhanger, Made in America, Guilty as Sin, Dave, Menace to Society, <laughs> Life with Mikey, Hot Shots Part Duh, Sliver, and Super Mario Bros. <laughs> the movie. Oh, what a time to be alive. So immediately, absolutely huge. Goes on, as you said, to be the number one movie of 1993. Stops just short of a billion dollars. It has since gone over because it's a film that has been re-released and re-released and re-released and re-released. And in that time, that has pushed it over a billion dollars. And we've talked about a lot. A lot of movies make a billion dollars these days, some quite bad ones. So a billion dollars back then, arguably far more impressive. (laughs) Especially when you consider the number two highest grossing movie for 1993, Mrs. Doubtfire, made $220 million. So that might be the largest gap between number one and number two of all time. I'm not willing to (laughs) double check that right now. But yeah, over 700 million or just shy of 700 hundred million dollars of gap between number one and number two there. <laughs> thing is, that is, that's a really healthy number, because I have to imagine that's like mostly domestic for Mrs. Yeah. Doubtfire as well. So like, God. Entirely, apparently. Oh, oh, I think what we're hitting here is basically box office everything office. at this time on Box Office Mojo. So these numbers may not be... Uh... Well, I mean, it's got a worldwide number. It's just it's also got a blank in foreign, whereas Jurassic Park does not have that. So maybe take these numbers with a pinch of salt then. But yeah, Jurassic Park, Mrs. Doubtfire, The Fugitive the Firm, Sleepless in Seattle, Indecent Proposal, Horny Mums, It Was Your Year in 1993, In the Line of Fire, The Pelican Brief, Schindler's List, and Cliffhanger. So the numbers.com is Mrs. Doubtfire at $441 million, 219 okay. domestic, 222 yeah. international. Mrs. Yeah, so I'd imagine all of that, basically everything else on that list is, is higher than it says it is. But yeah, because I mean, like the domestic difference, Jurassic Park, 357 million versus Mrs. Doubtfire, 219. So I'm sure, yeah. All of those numbers are actually slightly different. Hey, Box Office Mojo and anything pre-2000 is a bit shaky, I mean, unfortunately. Box Office Mojo fell down a cliff after they made it more like IMDb. It's it's my least favourite thing that's happened to that website. Yes, I, I, I saw a tweet recently, I think Mike Thomas retweeted it, uh, and it's basically Box Office Mojo built the best site on the internet and then have just aggressively made it worse every year, which is truly staggering. The thing is that information has to exist somewhere, and it's an absolute travesty that it just doesn't anymore. Yeah. A, a juggernaut at the box office, a movie that, you know, I alluded to, it, it's been re-released multiple times, and I vividly remember being in cinemas in the UK and, like, seeing... It's, like, it's not just they've put it back out, it's in, like, every cinema, big posters they've got, they've done the full marketing push, and it makes money every time they put it back out. Turns out, people like dinosaurs so much that they will the Chris Pratt trilogy into existence that I've seen one of and I thought it was fucking shit. 
I don't know your opinion on the reboots. I but... have seen none of the reboots. Okay. I have only seen one, two, and three. For okay. whatever reason, in 2015, I was being vaguely selective with what I saw in cinemas. Like, I remember when we were doing Volume 2, you were picking up a lot of the slack for our 2015 movies. <laughs> Because I was just like, no, I'm not wasting my hard-earned money. It's TV time right now, baby. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I've got to watch The Leftovers. <laughs> Countdown to Destruction on EntertheRealWorld.com. Ben's first hosting gig, I think. It was. Yeah. No, actually, no, I didn't host that. I didn't oh, no, that. I hosted it. Even though I'd seen none of it, I still was like, I have to read the news. Sorry about that. Anyway. This is all just context. And so, and now for my most important question I'm going to ask now. Okay. Okay. You like dinosaurs, Matthew. I, I do like dinosaurs, canonically. What was more instructive to your love of dinosaurs in 1993? Jurassic Park or the Mighty Morphin Power Rangers? <laughs> I honestly do not know. Both were an enormous thing in my life. One still is, unfortunately. The 90s was a good time to like dinosaurs. It is the thing. I was an enormous Power Rangers fan. So yeah, them having giant dinosaurs to ride around in. Chef kiss on that, but probably Jurassic Park, to be honest. I don't know. I mean, kids like dinosaurs. This is a thing. Like, I probably had dinosaur toys before I saw either of these. This was this was my, like, question was, like, I was watching this movie, and I'm like, Power Rangers starts in 93. Yeah. Which obviously means the Sentai version aired in, like, 92, 91. Benjamin. Yeah? You have assumed some knowledge from an audience that the Power Rangers... <laughs> Is a remake. Uh, they take footage from a show in Japan called Super Sentai. There are different seasons of it, and and some American man, a pretty horrible toy mogul, is in a hotel in Japan, th puts on the TV, and sees Sentai, and is like, okay, we recycle this footage. We cast some pretty Americans to be the actors outside of the suits, mishmash together, billionaires. And yes, he just so happened to pick the, the first season, dinosaurs in it, and I think that was probably a good pick, to be honest. Well, that's things, because that, in America, Mighty Morphin Power Rangers starts August 28th, 1993, two months after Jurassic Park has come out. I, yeah. but, but that has to be, like, one of the best moments of happenstance. They're there, <laughs> they are riding the coattails of the biggest movie of all time oh, yeah. with the freaking dino dinosaur season. And it's not even, like, when it's made as a Sentai in Japan, I sat there exactly, going, like, yeah. <laughs> oh, we need to do the T-Rex because there's a big American movie that's going to come out and be a, a huge monster hit. Independently, these two huge dinosaur things were being produced. Look, there have been four dinosaur themed Power Ranger seasons. <laughs> okay? Dinosaurs rule, is all I'm gonna say. So, uh, so my follow-up question is, uh -huh. why does Power Rangers choose, like, the weirdest dinosaurs? Like... T-Rex, Triceratops. T-Rex makes sense. Pterodactyl. Tooth tiger. Not like, a dinosaur, the, but, I mean... Pterodon yeah. is the more, more popular name for a pterodactyl. Are they not slightly different? And they are slightly different, but Pterodon is the one that I feel In the like same way, there's also a pterosaur. Yes, but I feel like Pterodon is the one that, like, Right. has the more pop culture cachet. In the I disagree. I think Pterodactyl is like one of the first dinosaur <laughs> names I knew as a child. But... That's because of Harry. Just... Shit, is it really? Yeah, alright. Woolly Mammoth, not a dinosaur. Sabretooth Tiger, not a, a dinosaur. A Godzilla, they call, they call not a dinosaur. A, they call it a mammoth, not a mastodon. They call it a mastodon, not a mammoth. They do. Yeah, okay. Hi. I mean, the Ankylo Ankylosaurus. Ankylosaurus. Those appear in the later dinosaur seasons. There's one 
found that they have fucking 13 dinosaurs. <laughs> There's a plesiosaur, which an underrated dinosaur. It's the Loch Ness motherfucking monster. It's the Loch Ness motherfucker. But that's what I, it just, it just, to me, it always feels like whenever I would like have a dinosaur book as a kid and go, like, I'm going to look up the pterodactyl and it would go like, here's the pterodon. I'm like, what? you have this wrong. <laughs> the 90s, a very fun time to be a child. There we go. That is our uh, brief mean, Welcome, Paris. Welcome to our Power Rangers podcast. You will be here for the rest of your life. Jurassic Park. So let's let's just finish off with 1993 context. This movie, I have to presume, considering just the year before, ILM won special effects at the Oscars. Yes. This movie did alright at the Oscars. It did okay, yeah. It wins best visual effects over Cliffhanger and The Nightmare Before Christmas. I would say one of those is a more (laughs) impressive thing to beat than the other, but, you know, still, deserve it. It also wins best sound effects editing and best sound. The iconic, you know, the the stomping of the T-Rex, the various dinosaur noises etc all very iconic Spielberg doesn't do too badly with his other movie <laughs> Schindler's Swiss which wins best picture over the fugitive in the name of the father the piano and the remains of the day inarguably the correct choice there uh, the piano is really good piano is very good and, it, and it, it does win best screenplay Spielberg also wins best director Schindler's List wins best adapted screenplay it wins Best Original Score, it wins Best Art Direction, and it wins Best Film Editing and Best Cinematography. So Spielberg goes home with many little golden men. Ten Oscars crosses two movies, and arguably... So Jurassic Park wins all three of its awards it's nominated for. I would also say Adapted Screenplay. It's a really good Adapted Screenplay. Yes, Michael Crichton fucks. Yeah. (laughs) Have you read Jurassic Park? I, I have not read Jurassic Park. I have not either, so okay. conversation I, over. But I Michael think, Crichton I think, I think it is like a very smart adaptation, though, because I think the book is a bit meaner, I think yes, is what I've heard. It, it's a little bit more hard sci-fi, horror. Well, not horror, but, you know, it, it's not a family-friendly day out at the, at the cinema in the way that the movie is. And obviously, Michael Crichton gets... He co-wrote the screenplay with David Coep, who has come up a lot on the stuff that we cover. A very weird... Uh, filmography for David Coop. Unfortunately, when you write the 2017 re-release of The Mummy or whatever, it's a red flag. But he wrote Mission Impossible, so well, then so did like four people. So you know. Yeah, but it's that thing where like both movies we've discussed from '93 probably should have been squeezed into the adapted screenplay and the written directly for the screen categories. Yep. Like Groundhog Day is one of the five best scripts of '93. Yeah, and I would also say that Jurassic Park is one of the five best adapted scripts of '93, just in terms of how effective it is, and obviously so much of how it's effective comes from Spielberg but like it's just it's a really good adaptation of the concept and just fully embraces like everything that it needs to be ultimately and the final one that I'm pissed it didn't get a nomination for where the fuck is the Jurassic Park score nomination an incredible score sung pretty regularly in this household with lyrics added of there's a dinosaur there's a dinosaur to the theme tune of Jurassic Park yeah an incredible uh, not just the Jurassic Park theme but like all throughout the goddamn movie it's amazing uh, a travesty, to be sure. John Williams, pretty uh, good at his job. He's <laughs> pretty good at his job, even though a lot of his scores do sound the same. When he makes a theme that like yeah, sings, yeah. he is like untouchable. Speaking of untouchable, Jeff Goldblum is insane. From Jeff second Goldblum. one of his appearance in this movie, he is absolutely insane. <laughs> Jeff Goldblum is... role in this movie is be sexy, flirt with Laura Dern. Be sexy for no fucking reason. <laughs> Be sexy, flirt with Laura Dern, get knocked around a little bit by a T-Rex, and then take your shirt a little bit off, and then just be For sexy, no reason! Also injured. He is the biggest 
star in the movie. I don't know if that was true at the time. Probably not far off though. Him and Samuel L. Jackson are the biggest names coming out of the movie to this day. Samuel Jackson is a year away from pop fiction and blowing up in a big way. But he spends a good 50% of his time in the movie lying down, being injured, just sort of sitting around kind of thing. <laughs> the rest of the time he's just being, he's the fucking maverick scientist. <laughs> And flirting with Laura Dern, which who wouldn't? Yeah, um, I, I think this needs to be said up front. I'm just, I'm just gonna say the best piece of graphic design in the history of entertainment is the Jurassic Park logo, thus poster, thus all of the merchandise in the movie, like for the fictional theme park, like that Jurassic Park logo branded everywhere. I defy you to find me a better piece of graphic design in the history of cinema. But that poster, no people on it, just black, and their logo was everywhere. Like that's an all timer, and that contributed enormously to the success of it as a brand as a as a thing that has persisted for so long I mean yeah absolutely and they, they only change it subtly like I feel like in even in the newer movies all they do is they just put the what is the big dinosaur of the movie or just do Ugh. the silhouette of that like for Jurassic World and stuff like that because it's not the T-Rex anymore is it it's the oh no they made their own dinosaur man they combined the DNA of five other dinosaurs and then played with that a little bit it's fucking stupid <laughs> Did play with the DNA in this one. They combined it with frogs and then created a travesty that allowed itself to dinosaurs to change gender. Very weirdly, the 90s was a very educational time for this particular topic because obviously Godzilla wasn't the hit this was, but I was a small child who liked dinosaurs. I fucking went to see Godzilla. And that also is like, ah, uh, yeah, I think it's asexual. It can reproduce without, you know, like a big time for like hermaphrodite animals and asexual animals <laughs> and all of that. That's the thing. Like, I think the book goes into like incredible amounts of detail about like the process and, and how they did it but like for a movie where like you don't have to care how they achieved it it is nice that you have that little because they like they make a point of like they're all female they can't reproduce it's all contained we control their behavior we control all of this and then of course it all goes off the fucking rails and it's nice that they have that little that little um not trap door but you know the little the way to explain their way out of the fact that there are fucking dino eggs on this island of all female dinosaurs. Yeah. I mean, the structure of this movie is kind of impeccable in terms of the fact that, like, you get that tease up front of, like, the people trying to put the velociraptors into the electrified cage. And, like, you immediately get, like, right, this is some bad shit going on. And then the movie just kind of goes, like, we're just going to ramp the tension up for an hour. You are not going to see a dinosaur attack. I mean, it, it's it's the rules of Jaws. He wrote the book on this, and they teach it to this day of, you don't see that fucking shark for a very long time. And right. even when you do, you don't see it that much. And it's the same thing here. Like, you see, they will show you, is a Brachiosaurus or a Diplodocus? Up yeah. Like, up front, you get, like, the herbivores, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, but the main event, the ones they know that you paid the money for, the Velociraptor, the T-Rex, you see an eye, you see rustling bushes, a cow gets lowered in on a net and then the net comes up torn and there's no cow anymore. And you get little soliloquies, first by Sam Neill and then Muldoon. They, they each have a little rant about... It feels like this was a PR job to be like, actually, Velociraptors are cooler than T-Rexes. <laughs> but then the T-Rex totally fucks up the, the Velociraptors at the end and saves everybody. But he knows what he's fucking doing and, and he makes you wait an hour to see a T-Rex and then you see a motherfucking T-Rex and it's the coolest thing you've ever seen as a child. So that's my question now is that obviously Spielberg has never done a quote-unquote pure horror movie. 
No. Jaws and this are the closest things. And then obviously there is the discussion of Poltergeist, which on the face of it, he did not direct Poltergeist. But obviously there is repeated claims that Spielberg kind of took over control of that production as well. He did his segment in the Twilight Zone. He does his segment in the Twilight Zone, but he has never directed a full 90 to 100 minute horror movie. And yet he is undoubtedly... He's the greatest horror director of all time, maybe. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Like Jaws is so fucking good at building tension. Jurassic Park is so good at building tension. He's even good at doing it in like World of Worlds. He is a master of kind of deploying it in movies which are on the face of it like family friendly or just kind of like thrillers or anything like that and just ramping up that tension. I think he he just he really knows where the line is. Like he knows how to like you know this is still a, f- a film you can take your children to. We're going to give you a little bit of a thrill. Like his movies are are theme parks almost. <laughs> like like he knows where to put the big dip and the big you know and this is the lull where you're safe and then we're climbing back up and you know he knows what he's doing. Yeah, like, <laughs> like I'm not joking about that. Like to this day they teach it. I defy you to find a major director and, and probably every horror movie director influenced by Jaws, like without a doubt that less is more. The other thing here is obviously the CG and the effects in general, much like with Death Becomes Her, enormously impressive for the time. Even now, like, it's hard to see. Like, obviously, like, watching it, I can go like, right, this is when they've swapped from a model to a CG construct. In the scene with the the brachiosaur when they're, like, in the treetops. Which doesn't look good in 2021. But, you know. (laughs) The the head coming into the thing is like, oh, cool, it's a nice little, like, prosthetic thing that's coming up. And then the scene when she gets sprayed by it like kind of ejecting <laughs> mucus or whatever it's doing. It has like, a cold. <laughs> it's very obviously a, the, the CG model because they need to get like the angle on the shot better. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. like it is that interplay between the two of them that makes it so much better and it yeah. is so much better than like and obviously you have discussions nowadays coming up like I don't know if you saw on Twitter the discussion about the behind the scenes shot of Black Widow where Florence Pugh is sat in front of the Oh they're screen. sitting in a bar and even that is, is blue screen. But that is because that presumably was from reshoots or whatever because yeah. Marvel shoot plates of every single location they did go to so that if they do need to do reshoots they don't need to go back to the original location and get a whole load of extras they can yeah. just get Florence Pugh stick her in, a, in yeah. front of the blue screen and then put the background in. I've also seen speculation it's like you can control the extras in the background and even things like she's got a cut on her arm and stuff like that. It's like, why sit there and take hours resetting a, a shot sometimes and, and doing all the makeup and like if there's something that happens to a costume, you've got to like in a movie where anyone gets like wet or anything like that, it's like a nightmare. And it's like well, what if we just fucking just see you the whole goddamn thing? Yeah. <laughs> and it's like, I see why, but like this movie is probably the quintessential argument for practical over CG because when they come across that triceratops Mm. to this day that looks incredible like inarguably she is touching that object you know (laughs) like 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 hands are and and faces and stuff are on the thing and it is moving you can feel its presence through the screen and also just brackets in general Laura Dern amazing the single tear of when she just just is confronted with this majestic creature incredible piece of work by her and and like it's they've built that for not much payoff realistically it's not like the Triceratops comes in to save them later yeah you you really expect that to go somewhere or like she discovers she doesn't even figure out what's wrong with it I'm sure there's a deleted scene where she like figured it out and they go like it it kind of ruins the pacing this is just a way for us to get Laura Dern away from the T-Rex action and back into the visitor centre or whatever. Strand the grump with the children and everything, but I think 
ILM made the rigs. I, I don't, but I just remember hearing very recently, in fact, that like whoever was in, in charge of this told the employees, don't bother making rigs because we're just going to CG it all. And the guy made a rig anyway, and it looked incredible. And like somebody high up from the movie came to, uh, possibly Kathleen Kennedy, came to look at it and, and was like, oh, this looks incredible. And then from then, they got to make the whole lot. Super glad that person defied his boss and, and made a rig of a dinosaur. And like, even with like the T Rex, like I assume that's animatronic when it's just the head coming through the trees, and then mm-hmm. when it's actually stomping around at CG. And they do the the classic thing of let's move it to nighttime so that you can daytime CG is always more obvious. Uh, so like there are a couple of the shots of the T Rex that it's like mm, okay. But for the most part, as you said, even today, it looks pretty good. I assume, like, elements of the raptors are animatronic as well. And, I think yeah. I think ears are got, like, any scene where they're in, like, it's just their feet, or even yeah, like, yeah, when they're yeah, first yeah. coming into, like, the, the kitchen when they're, like, stomping around, is yeah. all man in a suit, yeah. like, clicking his claws and stuff like that. <laughs> Very creepy. Those velociraptors, what, what a little crew of guys. Just, just, just fucking... <laughs> Unless they figure out how to open doors, and then they do. And then I love that that comes back and it tries the fucking door again when it's trying to get very very good stuff yeah i mean we, we've jumped straight into dinosaurs because dinosaurs are fucking cool but there but are should, humans should we, in the movie, i suppose people. yeah, so, yeah. You got, so you got sam neil playing dr alan grant i mean sam neil's just like a really cool guy yeah, i feel yeah. like he feels like your ordinary uncle even back then and even more so nowadays like he's functionally playing the same role in this as he does in Hunt the World of People again like the way movies have changed I don't see someone like him getting cast in this like you look at who they cast today it's Chris Pratt coming off Guardians of the Galaxy and becoming an A-list Hollywood hunky man and they went with ornery uncle as you said like that's not a decision they make these days unfortunately but god this movie would miss his presence even if you have the showier performances from Goldblum and, 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 and Wayne Knight and <laughs> Richard Attenborough and whatnot. Sam Neill just being just sort of perpetually a little bit pissed off, openly hating children, is incredible. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, that is the thing with this movie, is that, like, it isn't casting people that you would necessarily think would be the leads of this kind of thing. They are a little weirder. No yeah. one's star power is going to overpower this movie. I mean, what yeah. Sam Neill's coming off of stuff like The Hunt for Red October, he's in the piano this year. <laughs> he played Damien in Omen 3. It's a weird career, not exactly a lead leading man career. Laura Dern is obviously coming off of Blue Velvet and like Wild at Heart. Jeff Goldblum's coming off The Fly. They are coming from these kind of more horror, more independent kind of like gross out, or not gross out, but like, and even like what Richard Attenborough, best known for being the brother of David Attenborough. (laughs) With his wandering accent, he forgets all about at several points of the movie. (laughs) Just be English, dude. I don't understand why they make him be Scottish. It is weird. I mean, he gets by on being like a charming, impish little old man but that that disappears. I do like that they all, you know, while they are all wowed by it, they're like, this is a really fucking bad idea you've had. (laughs) And then by the end of it, you're like, yeah, this was a really bad idea I had. I do find it funny that he does this after his like run of directing movies because yeah. like in the he's, he directed Gandhi he directed Chaplin and then he's like and now I'm gonna go be the villain not villain of this movie yeah that is very much the thing it's like it feels harsh to call him a, a villain but like this is all kind of his fault <laughs> this is just fundamentally a very stupid idea <laughs> and you have the out and out 
villainous subplot of, of fucking Wayne Knight being a grumpy tech geek who wants more money, so he's stealing all the embryos. And they only have 14 species, which, I mean, you only actually see, like, what, five, six species of dinosaur? So you see um, T-Rex, Velociraptor, Triceratops, Triceratops, Dilophosaurus, Brachiosaurus. Yeah, the little not-raptor things that stampede away from the, the yeah. T-Rex. There are some that they don't show off in the movie. I, yeah. presume, I presume that gives them the latitude for Lost World. Yeah, I really don't remember Lost World. I remember a T-Rex comes back to America. Um, the, yeah, the two things I remember are the bits where the, t- the Velociraptors are hunting in like the, the rice fields or whatever it is, and then it's T-Rex in, in New York. Did they deliberately bring it back? Did it sneak up all? I think they were like trying to do like a, a King Kong type thing. Oh, excellent. Okay, so can we talk about Wayne Knight for a second? Yeah, sure we can. Another veteran from Space Jam. In career this man has in the 90s. Yes, good old Newman. Just completely ubiquitous and then completely disappeared. Yep. He's in Jurassic Park, he's in Basic Instinct, he's in JFK, he's in, he's in Seinfeld, <laughs> he's in Toy Story, he's in Tarzan, he said he's in Seinfeld, he's also on Third Rock from the Sun, and then after the 90s it's kind of, he shows up. Oh god, is in Third Rock from the Sun, is he the, does, um, oh I forget who plays her, the, the lady of the family, doesn't she end up with him? Uh, possibly. And she's like enthralled by him and the whole joke is, oh he's so physically attractive when, oh no, the overweight person, you know, like. Every single thing that he's ever done <laughs> in his career is like, <laughs> like even in this movie, it's like the whole thing is like he's eating dinner when Dodgson arrives. Look at him fall it. down the thing, look at him struggle to move around. <laughs> and, like he, and, and he's good at it, like he's good yeah. at the physical comedy. It's yeah. just weird to think that for a hot minute Wayne Knight was like, yeah. who do we need as like comedic relief yeah. in a villainous role in our like blockbuster yeah you gotta he's gotta be like the, the the sort of sixth man on your bench kind of thing like you gotta be able to call on wayne knight in the 90s i love his little spy uh shaving foam can an incredible piece of prop making that again i i all i remember is the t-rex coming back to america does that can being left there come back up in a that's, that's i was gonna wonder like is this the thing that like is important to Lost World or to to Jurassic World or something like does BD Wong have a flashback <laughs> in Jurassic World where he picks up the canister and goes like oh I can rebuild Jurassic Park and make it fucking, world now fucking BD Wong BD Wong uh, being the only person they brought back for Jurassic World is <laughs> wild to me well Gotham was very big so he's good on Mr Robot to be fair okay I mean I think he's good in most things it's just like ah oh, hey BD Wong <laughs> Do we want to talk about the kids? The kids are as good a pair of child actors as you could hope to see in a movie, is my opinion. And yeah, Joseph Mazzello has obviously had a career afterwards. He's really good in the Pacific. We talked about him a little bit in The Social Network. He is in Bohemian Rhapsody, which is a travesty, but he has continued acting, whereas Ariana Richards has stopped. He makes a cameo in Lost World, and that's functionally like the last time she appeared on screen. Has a Wikipedia page, though, so <laughs> fuck you, everyone else. Kids can be very bad. I think Spielberg is good at getting good kids for his movies. They do everything they need to do. They're really yeah. good in the scene where they're climbing over the electric fence. I think, which is like, I mean, and in the scene in the kitchen, like being scared, they're really yeah. good at that. Like, she, yeah, she's very good at screaming with mouth open. Can I just say, possibly the weirdest line of dialogue in the history of cinema is "Big Timmy, the human piece of toast." <laughs> And then he just ruffles his hair and fucks off. And it's like, he just died for a minute. 
I thought you were going to say, it's a Unix system, I know this. That's oh yeah, that was pretty time. weird too. And also, like that is not how that OS would work, surely. Slow most, zooming in on the The most building. overdeveloped OS I've ever seen in my life. Whereas, like, What if every single file was like a skyscraper? Yeah, and you had to slowly pan around the park. <laughs> I, do, I do like that the movie takes ages and it's like, Tim's whole thing is he likes dinosaurs and is like doing like a proper like scientific like grilling on Alan Grant where he's like yeah. I've read another guy's book which is way longer than your book and like can you disprove <laughs> any of his theories and I love that like you know he puts him into the car while he's following him around and then he turns around and, and Lex is just standing there as well and the little fucking smirk from Laura Dern and she looks away and, you know this subplot of like she wants kids and he doesn't and he's very bad with them and then they you know he saves from, from the T-Rex and then they bond in the tree and everything the conveniently shaped tree <laughs> um, three people <laughs> yeah fucking just leaves them in the visitor center while he fucks off to the safe bunker and they almost die but yeah no he's he's getting there and then yeah she has the uh, ovaries on overdrive moment at the end when she sees them all asleep in the helicopter or whatever. but you know the the sexual magnetism of Ian Malcolm <laughs> is hard to resist for a time as he uh it's a Does really it? sexy cast, isn't it? <laughs> it's a pretty sexy cast. Like, even, for a movie that should not be sexy. Even like Samuel L. Jackson's Smoking the Cigarettes is a little bit sexy. Like, all yeah, the a lot, a like lot of intense close-ups of his, his like, pursed lips with a cigarette barely clinging on between them. Yeah, I mean, I think Bob Peck and Jackson are the last two to talk about, really, where it's like, Muldoon has the best line in the movie. Clever Girl is so fucking good. He should have been Australian if they wanted this to be a five-star picture, personally. <laughs> it's Screenwriting 101. Alan Grant tells that shitty little kid that, like, this is yeah. how a raptor would fuck you up, and then that's yeah, exactly what like, happens to him. Yeah, like, one of them will stare you down, and whilst you're distracted by the one that's staring you down, two more are going to come up on either side and just rip you to shreds. And that's what they do. Them, like, bursting through the wiring once uh, Laura Dern turns the power back on it is pretty funny, and, like, all the shit in the kitchen jumping up to the vent and figuring out how to use doors and uh, I love that she hides it's not a dumb I don't know like a vent or something and, and her reflection is in is in the shiny chrome kitchenware and it just fucking fucks itself up charging at her and they're, they're just constantly terrorising everyone is great and, uh, so, so big T-Rex saves the day <laughs> so what is the, the coming out of this which dinosaur has the most cultural cachet because obviously the franchise kind of takes as the velociraptor are the stars of the franchise i think as i said it feels like a hit job or, or like a pr campaign for actually you kids with your t-rexes look how cool velociraptors are but irrefutably in every movie the t-rex is the main event except when it's indomitus rex in jurassic world but then i think even in that a t-rex fucking fights it i mean because the t-rex in this ultimately does save the day in just yeah. the fact that like the t-rex just wants to hunt some things the velociraptors <laughs> are like chaos and they're just like we just want to like fucking murder everything the bisexual and... energy flying off the velociraptors is intense and then it's just big himbo t-rex even though it's a woman flying in and eating them all and i love that that like it fucks up the first velociraptor and the second one like fucking screams has a good old run up at it jumps onto the side of it and then ends up like accidentally wriggling into its mouth <laughs> yeah and then every, i think every other movie after that does have like a significant subplot involved with the velociraptors i can't remember if there is in jurassic park 3 i feel like jurassic park 3 is all about the flying dinosaurs yeah they're like we're, we're going to, they're taking to the skies and i remember the toys of the flying <laughs> 
it's like, you know, the humans have hang gliders and there's pterodactyls and all this shit. Sorry, ter- pterodons. I was, yeah, I was and trying then... to explain to, to my partner last night of like what the what the plots are. And it's like, so Jurassic Park 1 is set on one island. Yes. Last World reveals that there was a second island. Yes, stupid. Then Jurassic Park 3... <laughs> they is... go back to the island? No, they go back to the second island. Okay. Yeah, but yeah, Alan yeah. Grant goes. And the whole yes. thing is like, William H. Macy hires Alan Grant to be their guide, thinking it's the first island. But in reality, he actually wanted to hire in Malcolm, who's the only one who's been to the second island. <laughs> And Jeff Goldblum doesn't return until um, Extinction or, or Fallen Kingdom or Fallen whatever Kingdom, it's yeah. yeah. So Jurassic World, the only one who comes back is B.D. Wong, who I think is like the mastermind behind the new project or something. Then Fallen Kingdom brings back Goldblum for like a trial, I think. And they and haven't it... brought back William H. Macy or Taylor Leone? Come on. No, but then Do- Dominion will have Laura Dern, Sam Neill and Jeff Goldblum coming back. Okay. Isn't Vince Vaughn in... Vince Vaughn's in Lost World. Is he like a cameraman or something? Yeah. Uh, he's like the the male lead of that movie. Oh my god! <laughs> like the the male action lead. I think I need to rewatch the last one because we are watching all the Jurassic Park movies. Okay. Is is the plan for us now? So we're now. Oh, like... Jeff, Jeff Goldblum is 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 back. Julianne Moore, Pete Puffleswaite, Vince Vaughn, way down the list. But I guess yeah, the the male lead almost. Oh, Peter Stormare. What a great cast they built for this dumpster fire of a movie. Every so often, you'll get people like trying to say the movie is like a little bit underrated, and they'll post the clip of the scene when they are in the like. So obviously, this movie has the the great sequence where like the cars hanging over the edge, and they're like trying to yeah. jump onto the the next wire and stuff like that. And it's all very tense. What Lost World takes it a step further when they've got a big van almost, or like, and they're all in that, and that gets knocked over the side. And so it's all of them kind of like clambering over ledges and stuff like that, trying to not cause it to fall down the rest of the cliff uh, with the mm. glass bottom that's like breaking and stuff like that. And I think they're trying to save Julianne Moore, and it's like a great piece of tension filmmaking. And it's like, yeah, Spielberg's good at this shit. Like Spielberg yeah. knows how to make it. A sequence is just, I'm not sure the script was there. Fallen Kingdom had the giant hamster balls, so checkmate. I will yeah. watch these movies. Okay. They are two of the highest grossing movies of the 2010s that I've not seen. And yeah. I am sure I'm going to come away with like a negative opinion of them. I mean, obviously the appetite was there. People like dinosaurs. I feel people forgot they like dinosaurs from like 2000 to 2010. And they're like, no, no, remember how much you like dinosaurs? And we're like, oh yeah, we do. Um, so, that's important to discuss is like, so obviously in the wake of this movie, Spielberg takes four years off. He founds DreamWorks. It's like the big thing that he does. Once he wins Best Picture, he kind of takes some time off, founds DreamWorks, and then basically comes back in 97, so four years after this, with another one-two like historical drama and big CGI blockbuster. Both of them underperform in comparison to what they're supposed to do. Like, Lost World is the number two movie of 97 in comparison like after Titanic like so still big but like massively massively pales in pales in in size to Titanic Jurassic Park 3 is directed by Joe Johnston because Spielberg's off busy doing like his own thing and then for I think 10 years they're trying to find what they're going to do with Jurassic World and there are some wild pitches I think one of them was like they're going to be intelligent velociraptors that can use weapons right was one of the pitches that sounds vaguely familiar yes for a decade they were like we want to make another Jurassic Park movie these movies always do big bang but we're just not happy with the pitch and so 
2001 they were like discussing what they were going to do for a movie and like every single story idea was just like binned and binned and binned until eventually they come up with whatever the plot of Jurassic World is yeah and then Beast Wars Transformers makes them look silly look at that Velociraptor with weapons he fucking owns quoting Shakespeare and shit (laughs) but yeah it it does sort of vanish off the face of the earth after being the biggest thing I do think the weakness of the other movies is is they lack the kind of childlike sense of wonder that this movie yeah absolutely the conceit of he's opening a theme park everything's ready to go he needs to sign off so they're gonna get the tour and like i think doing it that way is just fundamentally more engaging than going there knowing what's up and like it just lacks that central hook and you know, we get the Mr. DNA who will become Miss Minutes and Loki. And I like that that ride isn't finished. And I like that the nerds are completely, oh, we want to see the eggs. <laughs> get us off this damn thing. And that they're more interested in that kind of stuff. And that like a real zoo, all the good stuff is asleep. They've taken your money, so fuck you. And they get out and yeah, that's, that's when they start interacting with Triceratopses and everything. I just think that that fundamentally is, you know, like seeing them going around in the Jeeps and like imagining, oh, what if I got to go to Jurassic Park is the thing. And then Jurassic World, like, to their credit, it was probably a good idea to, like, see the idea the whole way through and be like, look, here it is, a functional thing people actually go to and it's populated. It's just what happens in the movie is fucking stupid. Um, yeah, um, the, th- the thing, I mean, obviously I heard about, like, Bryce Dallas Howard and the high heel shoes and stuff like that mm. and those kind of things. But, like, the, the main thing I remember hearing as a complaint was it feels a little bit vindictive. I, I, like, I remember people talking about, like, there's the babysitter or something who gets attacked by a flying dinosaur and the movie super rebels in like just completely ripping her to shreds. That lady gets so murdered. It's it's really fucked up. One of the flyers plucks her out of the air and I think she's being dropped from like one to another to another and then it flies over the, the water enclosure. I don't know if it is a plesiosaur but a very large water based dinosaur then eats the flyer that is carrying her. It's like was this necessary? Like, yeah, I, I know, like I know that dude gets super eaten by the T-Rex and Presumably, Wayne Knight gets murdered by the little the little troll dinosaur. Diplosaurus. Diplosaurus. Yeah. I also do like that. Like that thing is never not menacing. It's just they're playing a cute sound effect. Like if mm. you mute that scene and look at it, that thing is creepy the whole time. It's just like, ah, oh, look how cute the little guy is. But and that's like... Thing is, like, everyone who is murdered in this movie is either someone who's hubristic or it is like a punch in the gut. Where it's like right. Wayne Knight overestimated. He's the person that causes the fuck up on the entire island. So him mm-hmm. dying is like, okay, good, thank fuck he's died even though he's like fucked everything up for everyone else Robert Muldoon underestimates the dinosaurs and pays for it Ray yeah. like when Jackson dies and like you get the reveal of the arm on Laura Dunn's <laughs> lapel which is like an incredible reveal but it's like yeah. yeah like he went off on his own he was a little bit hubristic and didn't understand what was actually going on here like the two deaths that feel a little bit kind of like applause worthy are the Wayne Knight kill and the Donald Gennaro and, yeah. but that's because they're playing villainous archetypes like they literally have Martin Ferrer playing villainous lawyer like he's literally called like <laughs> when they're having that scene where they're like eating the fancy meal and like mm. the only person I've got on my side out of all these scientists is the blood-sucking lawyer and the lawyer's yeah, like wait yeah. what? <laughs> what <are you> <laughs> And the thing is, he's just sat there with dollar signs the entire time, but he's also the one that, like, fucking runs off and is a complete coward. Yeah. yeah. And then you cut to Jurassic World, and apparently, like, the babysitter who does nothing to make her, like, a villainous character. It's not like she's abusing the people in her, like... Yeah, it's just straight up, hey, someone has to die. It it feels very horror movie, like, not, like she's virginal or anything but you know just like someone must be sacrificed to the giant dinos for spectacle the kill becomes more important than the tension that it's building it's just like rampant 
violence and mayhem kind of thing. It's like, that wasn't quite what Jurassic Park was. <laughs> no, like, I mean, what? You don't see any of the kills on screen, really. Like, even when Nedry gets killed, the, the camera pans away and is outside the van, and you just see, like, the van rock a little bit and some silhouettes in the in the windows. Yeah, I mean, you um, do see the T-Rex, like, eat the lawyer. But, yeah. like, it cuts away, and, again, the most graphic thing you really see in the movie is, like, the little bit of goat carcass and Ray's arm. Poor goat, just hanging out there for hours. And... <laughs> this is the platonic ideal of what a blockbuster can be, and it's obvious yeah. that Spielberg knows this kind of thing, and it's a shame when he does do a good blockbuster, they're still really good nowadays, but it's obviously not where his heart's at, so Ready Player One and BFG don't play the same nowadays, sadly. It's so simple, and yet people seem to trip themselves up trying to be clever, and they fuck up in the process, and it's like, look, this is just how you do it. You have, like, that very brief tease where we're just going to show you an eye or, like, you know, a rattling cage and all that, and then you do the meet the humans, and you make each one, like, a little bit whimsical, and then, boom, here's the grand spectacle, and then at the hour mark, you introduce the big tension and the, and the you know, the T-Rex, and... Yeah, it just it just works really well. And, yeah, I mean, it's just it, it's effective. Like everyone gets stuff to do. It's a weirdly like big cast for this kind of thing, but everyone's like well developed. Like you get what Wayne Knight's deal is with like yeah. three scenes of him. I think that's the thing. Is like Spielberg is quite a sweeping statement to say that he never does anything fancy, but I think he's just so fundamentally sound that like he doesn't need a great deal of trickery. Like there's obviously always some like he has been a big pusher of like special effects. And, and you know his sound design and his edit you know all of that is always impeccable but like it's not like he's doing flashy filmmaking he's not doing anything like completely radical it's just like here are some good honest fundamentals of directing and that probably contributes to his like mythic status is it's just he's the director he wrote the playbook on direction and, and that's not true but like it might as well be functionally he is the person who creates the modern blockbuster with jaws in in 1975 and then yeah. for 25 years he basically just ran the floor in terms of like what you expected to get from some blockbuster entertainment and even when he wasn't the person directing the movie he was still everyone knew he was friends with lucas everyone knew he was friends with zemeckis like even the ones that he doesn't do they're all spielberg acolytes or friends and stuff like that who are doing these movies and so essentially like his little cabal is running hollywood for 25 years and yeah. functionally like when all of those people kind of aren't as good anymore or are less interested in making blockbusters that's when the summer blockbuster kind of gets a bit stale in the in the mid-2000s and that's when yeah the superhero movies start to take over and like tv people and like special effects directors and stuff start getting the top jobs and like they're basically just a reliable set of hands rather than anyone with any kind of vision because the vision is driven by producers and cg for better or worse spielberg all of his stuff has a clean iconic look to it even if it's one of his his less good things it still is immediately like evocative and and but yeah spielberg quite good is our conclusion yeah, i think we're quite good so in conclusion what are we doing next week Matt? so next week we will take things in a decidedly less Western blockbustery direction as we go with One Car Wise Chunking Express, which should be very, very fun. I got the big Criterion set a couple of months ago that came out with all his movies, and I've been slowly working through that up until this point. So I will have all of his 2000s movies watched this year and all of his pre Chunking Express movies watched. I'll just be missing the like the slither of movies he does in between Chunking yeah. and In the Mood for Love. Once again, if you if you haven't heard it, our uh, Mayor Copa episode 
episodes uh, on stuff we missed in the mood for love. Uh, a big, a big gaping hole in our in our list. But you know, we can try and set the record slightly right here with Chunking Express. Yeah, so, I mean, uh, I mean, it's it's nice because like this is kind of the first arty movie that we're doing. Like we're not doing many artsy movies. Both of them are my pick. Spoilers. <laughs> Cultured Ben and 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 Glutton Matt. <laughs> I mean, I did bring Death Becomes Her to the table, so you did do that. And Men in Black was on the list at some point. Spielberg produced Men in Black. Although I'd probably push for that myself. So We still have... My wildest pick is still like four episodes away at this point. Yes, so. that will be a time, won't it? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so fascinated to hear it. Because the movie in question, I will not say, although you can probably infer it if you listen to the podcast a lot and look at our Twitter bio. I have zero things against it. I just really want to hear why it's so championed by you, you know, to like such a degree. Uh, so I am eagerly anticipating getting there. We have a few episodes to do in the meantime, uh, as I said, starting with Chunking Express next week. So Matt, yes. let's, let's bring this to an end. Will there be movies slash dinosaurs? <laughs> there will always be dinosaurs. You were so concerned with whether there could be movies you didn't think if there should be movies that's lazy but fuck it it's a great quote that we didn't say once during the episode so there you go I, I, I like that applause bye everyone <laughs>